morning and they see a pulpit, they know I'm gone. <laughs> when they see a chair, they know I'm here. Last week I was actually in town. I was preaching at the Chinese uh, Christian Fellowship uh, across the way. They have been, had been meeting in our building for, wow, a long time, well over a decade. And uh, they bought their own building in the Okemos area, and I missed the dedication of that building. And so they had asked me to come back, and that's where I was last week. So I wasn't playing hooky for some of you who think I might have been. Uh, I was actually across town preaching. But I only preached once last Sunday, and I uh, thought that was a vacation. <laughs> but it's a delight to be back with you. In the infancy of television, there was a game show that became wildly popular called What's My Line? Remember that? And if you say yes, you date yourself. Because it started in 1950 and went all the way to 1967. Uh, it was a uh, game show where there was a panel of celebrities. And then they would bring in a celebrity and try to identify that person, who they were, or that person's occupation. Now, if it was a famous uh, contestant coming in, like Lucille Ball, the panelists would wear masks and they would ask questions of the person they couldn't see, and this famous personality who was the contestant would somehow disguise their voice so that they couldn't tell. But if they couldn't uh, identify, or if the person came in, they didn't know who the person was, they weren't famous, then the goal was to figure out what type of occupation they had. And uh, those of us who used to watch that program or the reruns of that program might remember that it was moderated by a John Daly at first, not the golfer. And uh, the panelists included Bennett Cerf and Arlene Francis and some other famous people like that. But it was a rather interesting show. Won three Emmys and was the best uh, TV show, actually. Voted the best TV show, given a glo Golden Globe back in 1962. And when I see Jesus in the pages of the Gospel of Mark, I often hear him saying to the crowds, what's my line? Who am I? What's my occupation? In fact, when you study the Gospel of Mark, you see that that is a constant theme throughout. Now, to begin with, Mark tells us right away who Jesus is, doesn't he? Uh, he talks about, I am writing the Gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. He says he's Messiah, and he says he's the Son of God right off the bat. But remember, that's Mark coming through the preaching of Peter after knowing all of the facts. But he begins to unfold his gospel and talk about the stories and the events of the life of Christ that happened to people who didn't know him. So when you think of the gospel of Mark, I think it's helpful to think of it this way. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 8, which is the middle of the book, there is this constant question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? For instance, in chapter 1, when Jesus healed the, the demoniac in the Capernaum synagogue, the people said, what is this? Who has authority like this? And who teaches like this? We've never seen anything like this before. In chapter 2, that was their response to the healing of Christ. We've never seen this before. When you come to chapter 3, the teachers of the law said, and we know who this guy is, he's 
connected with Beelzebub. That's why he has the power to get rid of demons. He is a demon himself and sent by the king of demons, the prince of demons. When you come to chapter 4, remember the disciples on the sea in the midst of the storm, and Jesus calms the storm. And what do the disciples say? Who is this? You'd think by this point, by this time, they might have known. But the question was still being asked. What is his real identity? In chapter 6, when he went to Nazareth, his hometown, they said, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? And we know his brothers. I mean, how can he claim to be something important when he comes from our hometown? And they thought he knew, they knew him, but he, they didn't. And in chapter 6, we also have King Herod saying, I know who he is. He's John the Baptist, raised from the dead. I beheaded John, and now he's come back to haunt me. And the question kept coming up, who is he? Who is he? It's climbing, like climbing a mountain to the pinnacle. And the whole gospel of Mark, as is true of all the gospels, their central purpose is to tell us, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to elicit a believing response. And so we come kind of to the pinnacle of the study of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 8. Now from chapter 9 all the way through chapter 16, the real question is, what is his mission? Why did he come? What is he trying to accomplish? And we're going to see from this point in our study through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, there's going to be this discussion of what Jesus has come to do. Up to this point, it's a secret. But Jesus is going to disclose the secret and let everyone know what his line is. So this is the Gospel of Mark. Let me encourage you to turn to chapter 8 in your Bibles if you have them. If you don't have a Bible, take uh, one in the pew rack in front of you if you would like, or simply listen and memorize everything I say as I talk. <laughs> Jesus had been in the region of the Gentiles in the far west of the land of Palestine on the coast. And then he made his way to the Decapolis, which means the ten cities that are just below the Sea of Galilee, actually kind of on the east side and then also to the southern region of the Sea of Galilee. And he performed many miracles among the Gentiles, fulfilling the prophecy that he would be a light to the Gentiles in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is the area of the Decapolis, would be richly blessed by the coming of the Messiah. The Bible tells us that he came to Bethsaida. This is verse 22 of chapter 8. And he came to Bethsaida, and there was a blind man there, and he healed the blind man. And in this story, we read that Jesus actually healed him in two phases. The first healing part of the process did not develop in total healing. Do you ever wonder why? Some people say, well, Jesus didn't quite get it right the first time. <laughs> I don't believe that. But he touched his eyes, and he said to the man in verse 23, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, yeah, I see people. They look like trees walking, uh, but I don't see them clearly. And then Jesus continued to work on him. Once more, he put his hands on the man's eyes. The man opened his eyes, and he saw clearly. So the first phase of the healing 
was that he saw partially, and the second phase of the healing resulted in that he saw everything clearly. We're going to see that this particular healing story is really indicative of what is about to take place as we begin reading in verse 27. So Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. If you're thinking of a map of the land of Palestine, of the Holy Land, they're now traveling north from the Sea of Galilee about 25 miles to the foothills of Mount Hermon, the largest mountain in all of Israel. This is the region of Old Testament Dan. This is only 40 miles west of Damascus. It's the furthest northernmost region that Jesus goes to as far as we know. And as he's going up to this area, it's important to understand a little of the history of the area of Caesarea Philippi. It was named after Augustus Caesar, thus the Caesarea, and it was named by Herod Philip, and he had to throw his name in there too. So you have Caesarea Philippi. But it was a historic area. For as long as the Holy Land could remember, this was a place of worship. There was an unusual cave or grotto from which a stream would come under, from underground and would flow beautifully down to the south, and that stream got the, river, uh, got the name of the River Jordan. And it flows into the Sea of Galilee, and then from the Sea of Galilee all the way south to the Dead Sea. It was called Banias because of the worship of Baal. And then by the Greeks, it was called Panias because of the worship of Pan. Maybe you've seen Pan in pictures. He is the mythical Greek god who is half goat, half man, and plays a flute. And they would have in their worship in this area uh, creatures uh, or people imitating these creatures and playing flute. So it was a center of worship for years. Then the Romans came, and a little above the grotto, they built this magnificent temple. Actually, Herod Philip had this temple built for Caesar. Because in Rome, it was fashionable to worship Caesar as God. And temples throughout the land, the empire of Rome, were built, and everyone tried to outdo the other person, and Philip built this beautiful, beautiful temple. The ruins can even be seen today, and they worshipped Caesar. So think about it. Ancient religion had always permeated the atmosphere of this particular land. The Baals were worshipped in this territory. The gods of classical Greek were honored They brooded over the face of the land. And then you've got the magnificent temple dedicated to Caesar himself. And it's in this area of constant religion and changing religion that Jesus asks a simple question. Look at verse 27. They were around the villages of this famous worship place. And on the way, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? It was a question about popular opinion. Jesus wants to know what the popular opinions are. The popular opinions of the day regarding himself. 
and how people would respond. Who do people say that I am? It's fascinating to get popular opinions regarding the identity of Jesus. Magazines like U.S. News and World Report and Time Magazine often are doing features, especially around Christmas, on the historical Jesus. The last one I noticed was in December of 2014. The title was The Search for Jesus Inside the Scholar's Debate. And who is the Jesus that lived? First of all, did he exist? Is he real? And then secondly, who was the historical Jesus? Kind of following the approach of of Albert Schweitzer way back in 1906 when he wrote the book, The Quest for the Historical Jesus. And ever since then, people have been fascinated with Jesus. Who do you think Jesus is? By the way, if you ever want to get into a discussion about the true gospel, that's a good question to ask people. Who do you think Jesus is? Their response will tell you a lot. Notice the people responded. They responded, or the disciples responded, because Jesus had this intimate time with his disciples. Who do people say that I am? First response was John the Baptist. Now that's kind of an odd response because John the Baptist and Jesus had been seen together when Jesus was baptized But paranoid Herod was convinced that after he killed John, he'd come back from the dead. And a few people might have believed that he was John the Baptist. Others said, no, this is Elijah. You have to remember that God promised that there would be coming a great prophet like Moses. That was Deuteronomy 18. And the Old Testament ends in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, with this promise. Before Messiah comes Elijah will come, and he'll turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the people back to God. And so they were looking for Elijah, and when Jesus came on the scene, he must be one of them. Others said, maybe he is one of the prophets. This is verse 28. And in fact, if you go to the same account in Matthew's gospel, they actually put forth the name Jeremiah. This is the weeping prophet. And there were similarities there. Jesus was kind of like Elijah in that he performed miracles. And he was kind of like Jeremiah in that he was weeping. And he was kind of like John the Baptist in that he called people back to repentance. But in so many ways, Jesus was different than all of these people. But on the main... The response concerning Jesus, the average opinion, was basically positive. And yet it was woefully inadequate. It's interesting, when you study the first eight chapters of Mark, only two people got it right. God. Remember when Jesus was baptized, the heavens opened? And a voice came from heaven, God the Father, who said, this is my beloved son. He got it right. You know who else got it right? The demons. When they were cast out of people, or when they saw Jesus coming, what are you going to do to us? Are you going to send us to judgment before the time? We know who you are. You're the holy son of God. People are in the dark, but 
the demons knew. And James picks up on this in his little epistle and says, you believe that there's one God? Good for you. The demons believe that too. And they tremble. So, the opinion about Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? Public opinion, if it gets close, is always woefully inadequate. I love what uh, Albert Hubbard said about public opinion. He said, it is the judgment of the incapable many as opposed to the discerning few. Public opinion is almost always wrong or woefully inadequate. And today, our world's opinion of Jesus on the main, on the average, is positive. Most people love Jesus, but it's a Jesus of their own making. It's a Jesus taken from only a few verses of Scripture and not the full picture of Jesus given in the Scriptures. What's your opinion of Jesus? Your view of Jesus is vitally important. I want you to notice that the response in verse 28 was rather large. That is, all the disciples, they replied. I I get the picture that all the disciples began to chime in. I've heard people say John the Baptist. I've heard people say Jeremiah. Everyone had an opinion. And then Jesus maybe stopped. Maybe they sat down. I don't know how much time elapsed. But verse 29, he said, what about you? It's easy to give insight and observation and evaluation based on the culture. But once it gets personal, we get really uncomfortable, don't we? And so now we go from the popular opinions to personal conviction. What is your personal belief? What is your understanding of who the Christ is? And I don't know if there was a pause. The scripture doesn't tell us. But there might have been an awkward pause. When the teacher asks the question in the class and no one has the answer, have you ever been there? You put your head down. And you you hope he doesn't call on you. You hope she doesn't notice you. I always got called on when I did that. So I tried the other thing. I tried to stare down the teacher. That didn't work either. And so I don't know whether Jesus looked at the faces of a quiet group of disciples who were hesitant to say the wrong answer. But Peter, he's never hesitant. He's the spokesman for the group. We've got to give him credit for that. He's kind of a leader, and so maybe he's speaking on behalf of the leaders. But Peter often spoke without thinking. Peter was quick to respond. And yet when he spoke this time, he was spot on. The Bible tells us when Jesus said, What about you? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. That's the Greek word Christos, which is taken from the Hebrew word Misha or Messiah. And they both mean exactly the same thing, the anointed one. It's not a name, it's a title. Most people think that Jesus is his first name and Christ is the last name. But 
His name is Jesus, and he shall be the Christ. It's a title. It speaks of the office he holds. In the Old Testament, they anointed kings before a king would serve. They anointed priests before they would serve in the temple. And they even at times anointed prophets before they would begin their preaching ministry. And Christ is prophet, priest, and king. And he's not just one of the anointed, he is the anointed one. Peter was actually saying, you're not one of the prophets, you're the prophet. You're the one. Like the others, yes. Better than the others, absolutely. He's prophet, he's priest, and he's king. interesting the gospel of mark starts out this way did you notice it if you go back to chapter 1 verse 1 this is the gospel concerning jesus the christ the son of god and if you go to end the end of mark that is to chapter 14 when jesus is being grilled by the high priest the high priest actually asked him that question Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus says in Mark 14, verse 62, I am. I read once where scholars said Jesus never where, nowhere in the scriptures declared that he was the Christ. He certainly did. Time and time and time again. I am the Christ. Early on, when Jesus' ministry began, right after his baptism, Andrew was impressed, and he wanted to go tell his brother. This is John chapter 1, verse 41. He wanted to tell his brother about the person he had just met, and he went running to find Simon, his brother, and he said, we have found the Christ. We found the Messiah, the one the prophets spoke about. So right from the get-go, there was a group of people who understood He was Messiah. But the Jews, their messianic hope had developed over the years. And they couldn't quite, many of them, put Jesus into the equation. You have to remember that when David ruled in the Old Testament, that was the zenith of the age of Israel. It was the best of times. David was a king who expanded the empire and ruled in a righteous way. And so the people of God, after David died, began to look for another David. In fact, God promised he would send the Messiah from the house of David. And they were looking for another king like David. But bad times ensued. You've got the Assyrian captivity for part of Israel in the north and the Babylonian captivity for Judah and Benjamin in the south. And then the Persians come in and wipe out the Babylonians. And then the Greeks come in and wipe out the Persians. And then the Romans come in and they're dominating the land. And Israel has seen no hope of a Messiah. But the Orthodox are holding on. And if you read the intertestament literature between the Old and New Testament, the messianic hope begins to build until when Jesus came on the scene, it was almost at fever pitch. 
And so many people embraced him as the Messiah. But the mindset of the people would have to be re-educated. Because their understanding and expectation of the Messiah was partly right and greatly wrong. Which is often true of our understanding of God. You might have a lot of truth in your heart and mind uh, about God but you probably have some misconceptions that need to be driven out of your heart and only the word of God can do it. You've got to refine your understanding of who God is because the better you understand him, the more adequately you can worship him and the better you understand him, the more you will desire to follow him. What's your opinion of Jesus? What's your opinion? Not the world, yours. Oh, I think he's Messiah. Good, you're on the right track. It was a wonderful answer. By the way, Peter's response was a little fuller than that. Mark doesn't give it all to us. If you go to Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Matthew also added that he is the son of the living God. Jesus' favorite title for himself was son of man, which attached him to our humanity, which means that he had entered into the human race but the title, the Son of God, had divinity to it. It was understood that this was God's nature shared. Something no one else had ever achieved. No one else had ever experienced. And so Jesus Christ was the God-man. He was the Son of Man and the Son of the living God. He's God incarnate. And when Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus said, Peter, you're right on. And I know you didn't get that from your friends. That was God-given insight. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because God has given you this insight to understand something so unique and so deep and so spiritual. And all of us need the insight of God. We need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. When you and I read the Bible, we will constantly be in the dark unless we pray, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. We've got to ask God to open the eyes of our heart and open the eyes of faith so that we might perceive and understand properly, adequately, and even deeply who Jesus is. God-given insight. You see, Peter was, Peter was programmed to understand something totally different about the Messiah. And most of the Jews were too. And that's why many of them missed him altogether. So then, Jesus says something to his disciples that's a bit shocking. Verse 30. He warned them, and it's rather strong language, he warned them not to tell anybody. Now, as Christians today, you hear preachers telling you all the time, witness, right? Proclaim, share the gospel, be an ambassador, tell others about Christ. But at this point in the history of redemption, Jesus said, please, please, don't tell anyone. Why? Because the people would misunderstand. It would cause confusion if they only thought he was a miracle worker. It would, it would there would be misunderstanding if they only understood part of his messiahship. 
And in fact, the disciples didn't even understand. Because Jesus at this point in time had been building up to reveal to them a secret, unbeknown to them at this point, hidden in Old Testament prophecies to be sure, like Isaiah 53, but not yet totally understood. Jesus said, verse 31, or from that time he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Those are all the three categories of the Sanhedrin. And that he must be killed. Notice the detail. And after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this for the very first time. Guys, I have got a secret I want to tell you. We've been working on my identity, and you score an A. Your answer was really good. Who am I? Great response. What have I come to accomplish? What's my mission as the Messiah? Lousy response. Verse 32, Peter took him aside. Hey, Jesus, come here. What you just said was wrong. Peter rebuked him. I'd love to hear that conversation. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Peter rebukes Jesus. You and I do a lot of rebuking of Jesus, by the way. We often do it in our prayers. God, you can't do this. God, why are you doing this? Who do you think you are? How could you do that to me? We go on and on. We're like Peter taking Jesus aside and trying to set him straight. The Jews needed to be re-educated about the mission of the Messiah. They understood the glory part. Here's the thinking of the Jews. After all of these years of dominance by foreign powers, God is going to send Elijah just like he promised. And Elijah is going to turn the people back to God and there's going to be a regathering and then Messiah will come and he will conquer the nations and destroy them and they'll become his footstool. And all of that is in the prophecy of the Old Testament. And they were looking for that kind of Messiah, a military Messiah, a conquering hero. But what they didn't understand is that before the crown, there would be the cross. And that's what you and I often don't understand. Aren't I a Christian? Aren't I on my way to glory? Haven't I been obeying God? Shouldn't things be easy for me and everything I do a success and everything I touch turn to gold? No. Be- because before the crown, there's a cross. They didn't understand his mission. Great response on his identity, lousy response on his ministry. And so someone has said that the second half of Mark, that is chapters 9 through 16, is Jesus' second touch. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Like the blind man from Bethesda, or Bethsaida, Peter needed a second touch from Jesus in order to see clearly. 
The first touch allowed him to see the identity of Jesus and to see things partially. But the second touch will help him to see everything clearly. And the second touch is the second half of the gospel according to Mark. My confession of Jesus Christ is vital. My eternal destiny depends on it. But it's not just an acknowledgement of who he is. Even the demons can do that. I must commit myself. I must understand his mission and commit myself to him as both Lord and Savior. My salvation doesn't rest on anything I do. It's totally on everything Jesus does, but it's resting on understanding who Jesus is. And the fact that when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his sin, he died for mine. And when I put my faith and trust in him, all my sin is gone. I'm buried with him in baptism into death so I might be raised with him in newness of life and live a life now following Jesus as Lord and eager every day to do his bidding. It's time for me to embrace personally who he is and live like it. A couple years ago, I was speaking at Camp Barakel, which is the camp we support. It's up to the north. It's a great camp. And I'd heard that they'd installed a zip line. Know what that is? That's that cable wire that's high in the trees and sometimes connected from tree to tree. If you go to Alaska, you can actually take a, a trip into the Alaskan wilderness and they have a zip line that goes from location to location and you can travel miles going on these zip lines. You're harnessed into this cable and there's a pulley system hooked on it and, and you have a helmet and, and then they say, okay, jump off. I don't know, 30, 40 feet in some places even higher. So I'm at Barakel, and I'd heard of zip lines, and I'm fascinated by them, and I'd love to go to Alaska and zip from tree to tree. But now I'm standing on the platform in Barakel, and they say, step off. And I say, I believe, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to commit myself to that thin little wire. How much do you weigh? That's none of your business. Well, <laughs> this wire can hold, you know, 800 pounds. It can hold you, which was actually an offensive thing for them to say to me. <laughs> but I had to make a decision. Will I trust it? And I finally did, because my wife did. If <laughs> she's going to do it, I'm going to do it. But I'll never forget that first step was horrible, because you go down, you know? First step, down. And, and if you would have caught me at that split second after I stepped off and said, is this a good idea? I probably would have said, this is a lousy idea. I knew I was going to fall, and now I'm falling. But you know, it became one of the most beautiful rides and experiences. When Jesus says, I'm your Savior, and I want to cleanse you from sin and give you a life that's more abundant, step off and believe. And you and I stand on the platform and say, yeah, we believe you're a savior. And when he says, step off, we say, no, not me. And we miss the ride because we're unwilling to believe. Well, I'm here to say that Jesus is all he claimed to be. He is God the Son. 
He is the Son of Man. And He wants to be your Savior. Will you believe? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that even in the lives of the disciples, there was growth and progress. And we're excited to see that at some point, after trial and error, they finally embraced you. Lord, there's some people here today who acknowledge that Jesus is a great prophet, a wonderful teacher, a sterling example. But they've not yet stepped off in faith to say, I commit myself to him, come what may, as my Lord and my Savior. And you would say to each one of us today, who do you say that I am? I pray that hearts today will cry out in faith, Lord Jesus, save me. And those who do will say every day of their lives, Lord Jesus, lead me. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>